Okay, audio is good. Cool. Welcome to the 34th edition of the Haunted Hacker podcast. Tonight's kind of special. We have two guests. Um, we have Key Jeffries, who uh, is a CTO for a blockchain company. And then we have my first boss when I got out of the military, um, Jim, who we're going to get to him here shortly. Uh, we'll do his first and then we'll uh, jump to Key and go from there. Uh, so a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Um, just to remind everybody that this is picked up by TechStrong TV and aired three times a week on their Digital Anarchy show. Um, I'm going to shut the chat off once we get started so there's no disruptions and save your uh, questions. Um, when you enter them into the chat, it'll come straight to me and, and I'll field them as we go. Uh, as far as news go, um, we have some, some really cool news. Um, we are at 400 subscribers on YouTube now. Uh, so I put up a uh, arcade cabinet, the Haunted Hacker arcade cabinet, uh, free to the 500 subscriber. Um, so whoever hits that 500 mark will get one of the Haunted Hacker arcade cabinets. Um, also, um, we've been mixing music. Me and Ryan uh, got like four track, three or four tracks now. The goal is to complete an album uh, before October and air that on the one year anniversary of the podcast. Um, also this week on the 30th, I think, yeah, the 30th, um, I'm speaking with Kevin Mitnick um, and some people from Microsoft and Palo Alto um, on Rubrics, uh, I guess, webinar kind of podcast deal. Uh, did the recording for it last week. Um, so it's gonna be live on the 30th and I'll send out a link to that um, in the Discord as well as LinkedIn, just to remind everybody. Uh, and I'm going to be on a couple different podcasts coming up, a couple different shows, uh, one of them possibly being a TV show. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so that's it. Uh, I want to introduce uh, a guy who had a huge impact on me um, when I got out of the military. Uh, he worked at uh, a very big ISP and uh, was building a global security operations center. I moved across the country um, from Virginia to start work there. And uh, that really launched my career into cybersecurity. I've been working as an as a, uh, analyst and a CND cell operator for USGFCOM as a contractor, but that's it's a little bit different in the military and, and as a DOD contractor than it is in the real world. Um, I got to see a lot of action uh, at USGFCOM, a lot of uh, really architected attacks and, and some really cool stuff, uh, but building, helping build a SOC and, and looking at different data feeds was, was a different type of feeling for me. Um, it really got me into the nuts and bolts of how security really works. So without any further ado, Jim, why don't you introduce yourself and, and give people kind of a background on, on what you do and where you came from. Hey, Mike, uh, you hear me okay? Absolutely. Awesome. So uh, honored, to meet, honored to meet everyone here. Uh, Mike has been... Uh, We've been uh, one of those uh, perfect examples of networking uh, for a long time. Uh, but I, um, so I got my uh, start, uh, was in, uh, started out in Tampa, Florida, which is where my, all, my family is from, and uh, started in retail and IT. And when they had a, a store called the Software Store down in Tampa, 
and no, we didn't sell underwear, though we got those calls. Um, but uh, really when it was uh, back in 82, and a couple of years later, I uh, had the opportunity where they were doing a kind of a yin and yang kind of a television show uh, for on one side was this teenager, meaning me, uh, why do teenagers break into things? The word hacker, of course, was used. Um, and then on the other side was um, a fraud investigator um, uh, that worked for uh, the company that I eventually worked for. He worked for my, uh, where my dad had worked. And so um, uh, I, and I got on there and uh, got interviewed by a television reporter lady. And uh, it, it was like, dad, I want to do what he does. And, I, you know, fate, trust, blessings, whatever you want to call it. Uh, in uh, 1994, uh, I was sitting, I was doing some uh, uh, technical support, call it the help desk, uh, et cetera. And uh, they, a uh, security guy walked across the hallway and said, Jim, you want a job in security? And I was like, how fast do I sign? And uh, of course, that was in September of 94. Uh, with a company y'all may know as uh, GTE, uh, now is what we call Verizon, and um, at their data center. And uh, sure, signed up. And uh, about uh, three months later, they came and said, we're doing a reorg, uh, which reorg at that early in your career means synergies, means you're low man on the totem pole. And uh, overwhelmingly blessed by the guy that was going to be my... Uh, a uh, new boss walks in the door in January, and it was the guy from the television show 10 years prior. That's pretty and amazing. so uh, pretty overwhelming. Uh, didn't, didn't know it at the time. But uh, from there, uh, started building user IDs on Unix boxes. And as uh, uh, Bill Gates says, if you uh, want to improve a process, give it to a lazy person. I was that lazy person. And so learn shell scripting very quickly because they were doing 85 different steps to build a Unix ID. Uh, and that was just going to drive me nuts. And then in 95, we had a, uh, a very large um, uh, a breach um, that was uh, started from overseas. And uh, of all things, and I, sh and I will tell you that in my... Uh, time of mentoring people wanting to get into the security field, I want you to hear this. Uh, that entire breach did not happen over that thing called an IP network. It originated over something called an X.25 network. And if you think that X.25 networks are dead or they are uh, no longer used by bad guys, uh, you would be unwise. And so um, we were looking at logs. We literally unplugged a Cat5 cable and uh, we still were chatting with said bad guy. And uh, we were like, what the heck's going on? And the only cable that was still plugged in was an X.25 printer cable. And so there was my uh, exposure to, um, uh, you know, I'll say what the media calls it today, the malicious hacker. Now I have a long story with that story goes on for a long time. Um, and uh, it was an interesting experience of understanding the views of people that were creative. Unfortunately, they stepped over a line that they shouldn't have, but uh, it was an interesting experience. And so uh, that's where I got my start. And um, I took a path. So that was 27 years ago, if you do the math. Uh, I then took a path of what in the industry calls uh, converged security. 
which is started a little bit in this thing called cyber or information security back then. Um, and now I've pretty much, I think, done pretty much anything that's in kind of a classic corporate security. I don't have a, a military background. Uh, I do uh, pretty much all of my mentoring is in military people that are transitioning or uh, law enforcement. My wife was former law enforcement. But uh, I've done physical security, cybersecurity, uh, kinetic red teaming, cyber red teaming, um, executive protection, uh, et cetera. So uh, the full gamut and thus when I uh, mentor and get the question of, uh, hey, I want to get into security, uh, I have the honor to be able to and blessed to be able to cover all the areas of this term called security. Um, and I don't think about a lot about how they talk about it in academia, which is okay. Um, I talk about it as an operational person for the last 27 years. And so uh, truly blessed Mike to have an incredible network and uh, more mentors than I deserve. And um, uh, just being able to give back now and as you do. And so honored to be here, Mike, and uh, honored to help your, uh, uh, your crew here and uh, answer any questions and step through some uh, what, what, uh, what themes you'd like to see. I'm, I'm strong on LinkedIn, folks. So that's kind of my, the place that I play. Uh, my blogging is on there. Um, and I'm always open to uh, the appropriate level of connections on LinkedIn. Uh, but again, Mike, honored to be with you again. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Jim. Um, yeah, when I went to uh, work for Verizon, it was, it was really a, an interesting time for me. Um, and, and especially for the, for the GSOC in general, uh, we were bringing in uh, a couple platforms that were pretty new to cybersecurity and, and very complex. Um, multiple data feeds, multiple you know, sources and buckets and, and containers and just a massive amount of work. Uh, but we did have a lot of fun. Um, we took a class on getting certified, uh, one of our certifications for a platform that, that we brought into the company. And uh, I still remember taking that class in the GSOC and, and everybody came in, all shifts came in and they had all these Linux servers sit on the desk and running the, uh, the platform. Well, I realized really quick that SSH was open on all the platforms and uh, they had really weak passwords. So I was like scanning the network and, and messing with the boxes and rebooting people's boxes. And we had a guy named Ron. Um, Ron and I used to tease each other a lot and uh, I would constantly reboot his box, but I, we had a lot of fun. Um, I taught uh, a couple of guys how to pen test and, and, and run exploits on, on our spare time. Uh, one of them, uh, I'm still really good friends with Rich Desai. Um, he and I have been friends for a very long time and we worked the uh, night shift together and uh, I taught him how to pen test and, and you know, how, how exploits work. And instead of seeing what's on the screen and looking at alerts, he was the first person I mentored to show him what generates those alerts and why those alerts are so important and what they flag on. Um, and that's kind of what I do now is, is try to teach people both sides of the security equation, because to me, if, if you just learn the, the defensive side, um, you can't be completely proficient. Uh, Sun Tzu said it best uh, when he said, you know, to, to beat your enemy, you have to become your enemy. You have to know your enemy. Uh, so that's, that's what I've done my entire life. Uh, so, yeah, the mentoring is, is really important. I am walking into a company on Monday, uh, taking on a team of 16 people for the first time. Um, I've never had a pre-built team. I've always had to build teams from the ground up, so this should be really interesting. But it's an opportunity to work with a gentleman who I, I've looked up to my whole entire career. And uh, 
finally getting a chance to sit down with him and build something really cool. I'll be working remote um, as a SOC manager for a while and uh, taking that, that to the next level, hopefully. Along with what we do here, this is really, you know, the Haunted Hacker movement was more of a mentorship type, you know, movement for trans, you know, transmitting information and knowledge. Uh, that knowledge transfer is really important. And I, I don't believe in, in charging for that. However, we are getting to a point in this group where um, we are moving some stuff to subscription level because it's, it's growing very fast. Um, so yeah, I, I really, uh, you know, working for you, Jim, it, it really taught me a lot. Um, you know, I remember you used to walk into the uh, GSOC and, and talk to everybody and that, that that's really rare, uh, especially for VPs and, and people on that level to, you know, come and spend time with their people. Um, we had some really good, good people there and it was a really good group. Um, and I still keep in touch with, with a lot of them. So Jim, what would you say is the biggest dilemma when it comes to running an organization like that? What, what was the hardest part for you? Yeah, and, and obviously I'll uh, respect our lawyers for a second. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer and all that other stuff. So we'll get that out of the way. But uh, they've, they've blessed me and my family. My family's got 90 years with them. So uh, they're absolutely a blessing and they are the reason I'm here. But, you know, Mike, I, 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 um, when I start to talk about organizational design now and from a security perspective, whether it's a classic just cyber information security uh, to a kinetic physical security, to a combination thereof. You know, it's, it's um, one of the things I've realized is that, uh, and I made the mistake at uh, the GSOC and other places is, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I hired, um, it sounds funny, but I hired way too many technical people. Um, I realized recently that, um, I real I uh, there's so much other skill sets, uh, Mike. You've seen my mind map. Uh, honored to go through that at some point with your team here or later. But when I realized in that mind mapping, what do we need in a security department? We meaning any organization. And by the way, I had the privilege of um, doing pro bono work for about 300 um, faith-based organizations. And what I'm talking to a pastor or seminary, you know, whatever level that they are, I have the same conversations. Um, and so one of the things in the security world is um, we uh, forgot to hire a marketing person. We got to hire a documentation person. We got forgot to hire a quality assurance person. Um, and the GSOC, we started to do some of that. Um, but, but I realized that um, we were hiring from skill sets that were about, were like us. Uh, both uh, psychologically, uh, technically, and otherwise. And that was okay when it was three people in a closet, which by the way, that's where we started. Uh, that was okay. Uh, but boy, we didn't, we didn't hire people that challenged us in non-technical areas because nobody could challenge us technically, uh, best of the best. Um, but boy, when we sit there and said, you know what, guys, this document is going to get thrown back if we send it up to a CEO. And we're like, why? because the colors are off uh, in all respect to the females on this call. I'm not a color guy. Uh, when I do analytics, I'm like, hey, is there a female in here? Tell me my colors are right or wrong type thing. And so something as simple as what's the skill set of the people? The other thing that I realized is that um, I didn't hire enough business people. In other words, people that kind of knew what you know, the company did for a living and kind of what was normal and weird 
uh, because we would see something to go, oh, that's just that. And people are like, oh, crap. What, how did you get a hold of that? Uh, what is that a problem? Or, hey, look at this. And they're like, yeah, it's been that way for 150 years, people. Get over it. And so it's that, uh, it's, you know, the technical side's easy. I've got, I'm blessed with lots of certifications. I've helped write some of the industry certifications. They're extremely, extremely valuable. But wow, when I didn't see PMPs or uh, uh, Mike, I don't know if you remember a name, a lady named Maria. Uh, Maria's uh, was our documentation person. She she was the Menza folks, a, a freaking Menza. And guess what? She brought to the table quality documentation, and not the stick the stick garbage of saying let's just have fifty policies to have to say we have fifty policies. She toned it down. She says, "Can we do this in one or two pages?" And she really taught us some of those things. It's like, and, and what it really taught us, I think, a lot was who's the customer of everything we do. I was a customer of Mike. Mike was a customer of mine. Uh, even inside the organization, who was the customer? Because everything we did, whether it was a, a guy that did the back office management of the infrastructure, was a customer of the front line and vice versa. Same, no different than our boss, the finance department, the audit, whatever it is, everybody was a customer. Everybody was a client. And when we thought about that, it was just, we have to produce an output whether that's uh, a requirement for Mike on the front line to be able to give back to the infrastructure for some analytical capabilities and say a database design, all the way to Mike producing some output that needs to go to a investigator or a lawyer or something like that. Mike, that's what we missed was that non-technical side. So if anybody on this is listening to this and you think, I'm just not that technical person, think about the other skill sets that you have or you are passionate about and let me tell you, I can find a place for you in a security organization. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, you know, when, when I talk to people about coming on the show or, or becoming co-host, um, I always get, but I haven't been in the industry very long where I don't have, you know, that type of experience. My, my answer is always, I need that, that fresh view, that, that, that aspect, that look into the industry from a beginner or a newcomer's point of view, because sometimes I miss things. Um, and with a fresh set of eyes that, that, you know, is completely new to the industry, hasn't seen, you know, the glitches or the hangups or the issues, it really helps. Um, and, you know, asking questions from a newcomer's point of view is really informational as well. Um, and it gives other people, you know, something to look at and say, hey, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. Uh, so, and that was one thing I, I really respected about um, the GSOC was the fact that we had so many diverse people. Um, you know, we had guys like Chris Hood and Jeff Sorrells, you know, and Rich and all those guys, and they were all so different, but yet we were all still the same. And they were super heavy on tech. You're, you're absolutely right with that. Um, that was probably the, the most uh, brain, I guess, brain dump area that I've ever worked in. Like there, there was so much going on and so many people with, with brilliant minds. Um, John Moore, Dr. John Moore that, that worked with us. Um, I still speak to him and he was just absolutely phenomenal when it came to uh, thinking about things from a different point of view. Um, I worked with him on a couple uh, supercomputing um, projects like linking uh, Sony PlayStations together and using them as a supercomputer. I learned so much uh, and not just from the job itself, but, but the people. And I think that's what uh, the industry lacks a lot of right now is we look at people as employees. 
we don't look at them as people. We're not interested in, you know, their lives outside of work. Um, so I try to encourage people, you know, go to the different departments within your company, uh, get a chance, talk to them, sit down with them. Um, if you do have employees, sit down with them and get to know them, find out what they do outside of work, um, encourage that. Uh, and search, search is another important thing uh, for me now at this level, at this point, um, I don't have room for certs. I have a ton of certs already. Uh, one of them, which was interesting, I, and I'm pretty sure you heard about this, Jim, the, the CEH, the EC Council debauchery and, and you know everything that was going on with them. It's unfortunate, uh, but a couple of my certs were from them. And uh, I think I actually took my CEH while I was working for you. Um, the, the company paid for me to go take the, uh, the test and uh, I passed that. So that was my very first certification outside of the military, um, which thank you for that, by the way. Uh, so yeah, like the industry as a whole, I think we're, we're at a point now um, after the lockdowns, we're all going back to work where, you know, we're trying to get back into that, that, that mode of thinking and, and that, that social, that social, uh, I guess, exchange, at, you know, inside the office. And it's, it, you know, like you said, it's very difficult when you have everybody who's super highly technical to be able to, you know, sometimes it's hard for those people to get things done because they fight against their own brains. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that on, on some of the shifts that, that I worked on was, you know, they, they had the right ideas and, and another group had, you know, good ideas as well. But when you're dealing with people that are that intelligent, it's really hard to get those two people to see each other. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the way that you approach a situation. I was very young in my career and, uh, you know, probably not the best at, um, you know, getting people to work together or communicate uh, because I, I was still struggling with that myself. You know, I have Asperger's and, and you know, learn how to you know, communicate on that level um, has taken some time and public speaking and, and, you know, podcasting and stuff like that has really, really helped. Uh, and that's another thing that you deal with in a diverse uh, work situation is you're going to run into people that have different uh, diversities, whether it be neurodiverse or whatever. Um, it's really important that that you know my my point, my my whole motto when I go into an office is I don't judge by someone's attitude or I don't judge by something they say because I don't know what's going on in their life. Um, I don't know what's happened at home, and I don't know what they struggle with. Uh, and to me, it's really important to get to know those people and find out the struggles and those diversities. Um, and that's one thing that, that the staff there, you know, at, at the old company um, was really good at doing. Uh, uh, Jerry Lundy was uh, one of the guys who gave me my first break and uh, still talk to him every once in a while. Really great guy. Um, but he was one of those ones who took the time to sit down and find out what made your brain tick. Uh, what did you have? What keys did you have that could lock, uh, unlock some doors uh, to other experiences for other people? Uh, and, and that's a gift within itself. You know, being able to identify um, those skills and, and, and those assets is, is huge. And I think by, you know, you'll, you'll hear people saying, well, I built this team and, and we did this and we did that and we did this great. But we hardly hear people say we did it wrong. We could have done it better by doing this. Everybody wants to have that glory, you know, hey, this is such a great thing and everything's flawless. Well, it's not like that because you have to make mistakes in order to succeed. And uh, I really appreciate that, appreciate that about you, Jim, is the fact that you're able to identify, you know, some of the things that, that were challenges and probably some of the things we fell short at um, because that's definitely helped me, you know, in my career. 
so I'm going to open up the questions uh, while we're speaking. So if you guys want to pop in some questions in the chat and I'll relay them to uh, Jim. And also we have a new co-host on speaking of uh, new into the industry and, and uh, not super deep and technical, but Ashley Eckert, um, she is a former Navy spook like myself, a CT, and uh, she's joining us tonight. Um, Ashley, if you want to unmute and say hello, how are you? Hi. So she, this is her first night um, and she'll be asking some questions from, you know, a, a, a fresh, fresh point of view. Ashley, do you have any questions for Jim while we're speaking about it? Um, off the top of my head, no. Um, might have one in a few minutes, so. Okay, excellent. All right, so, um, yeah. yeah. Mike, I, Mike, I also want to, Mike, I also want to tell people that uh, one of the other things that Mike's not getting, giving uh, uh, resonance to the, the power of this GSOC was, um, most people don't know, it was one of the first insider threat socks in the world. Uh, people think of socks as uh, a, a firewall sock or an intrusion detection sock and all these other what we kind of used to call perimeter or in, intrusion uh, type of sock. It was actually one of the very first that was insider threat. That was extremely new. We went to, before Mike joined, we went to probably 10 different companies trying to find somebody that had kind of done this and nobody had ever done it in the industry. And, uh, you know, we, we kept telling people, this is, you, you're part of a, a program that has never been done for anywhere in the world. And by the way, we still talk about, I was just on a call this week by a, with a Swedish customer, and we're still teaching people how to build insider threat socks uh, in 2021. And so that was different. We get calls from, you know, interesting agencies that we all know about. And they're going, we, we hear that term. And that's where we've learned a lot. So we were a perspective that nobody else had a perspective on. I mean, Don Capella with US Search, she defined the term insider threat. If you've never uh, uh, seen Don's work in that area, phenomenal work in that area. But boy, I mean, there are still people to this day, like I said, five days ago going, how do you do insider threat? And so Mike, that's, I think, a unique perspective that we, none of us, none of us do. We all came from this kind of uh, what the industry said we were supposed to do. Um, and by the way, folks, uh, you know, one of the things that we had a really fun time in there. Um, now, remember, we were a network company. 70% of the internet traffic ran across this particular company's network. But guess what? You know what the most despised term that we talked about a lot because it was insider threat was the term network security. Now, we've, all, we've got certifications in that. We got books on that. But let me challenge everybody. I'm a definitions guy. I'm a definitions guy. And I'll keep repeating that. But let me challenge everybody. And I love this statement from a lady that I was working an incident with. She says, networks were meant to pass traffic, not do security. Again, what a perspective. Now, do we need to secure network infrastructure? Absolutely. But just that perspective made you think, you know, think out of the box. And little things that think make you think out of the box was, Jim, what, what, why do, why do, what about network security? Ah, be careful. Uh, for example, we used to see uh, there was one incident where all of the equivalent IP addresses were all in uppercase. I'm like, oh, that's stupid. That must be just, you know, uh, bad traffic. Well, actually, in the old telecommunications world, anytime you see uppercase, all uppercase things in a field is really, really critical infrastructure. Okay. So 
it's all about perspective of when you go into and start working for a company, bring that new perspective and don't say, I know, but say, hey, you know, raise that hand and say, can I just make an observation here? Uh, if anybody's never heard of Andy Andrews, go read Andy Andrews's books on perspective. Uh, he's not a technical guy. He's just a storyteller, but it's really around, you know, learning what perspective you can bring to the table. Sorry, Mike. Um, and you're right. I'm, the the insider threat part, you know, I, I skimmed over that, but that's definitely a, a really important part of that history. Um, I had gone from USGFCOM, which was the backup to the Pentagon, um, in their CND cell and, and their GCCC, Global Command Control Center. Um, we did the network security and uh, infrastructure protection for the entire uh, East Coast of the fleet, including the Admiral. Um, so we got to see some really interesting stuff, but the traffic that I saw there and, and the types of attacks were much different than the ones that I saw at the old company um, because it was insider threat. Uh, and we dealt with several different business units spread out around the world. Um, some of them I still speak to and, and still do work for every once in a while. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a different, uh, a different view. And so far in, in the 20 years that I've been in this industry, I have not seen another insider threat SOC. Um, I'm sure that, you know, maybe they exist, but so far I haven't seen any. Uh, so kudos, Jim, for, for being one of the first to, you know, build the, uh, an insider threat SOC. Um, so yeah, certs. Let's talk about certs for a second. Sure. Um, I, I was a big proponent about, you know, certs when I first got into the industry because I, it was required uh, to get a job. <clears throat> um, but what I quickly found was that some of the certs were Kind of lackluster and, and probably not as deep technical as they probably should have been. Um, I took a couple certs from, I challenged a couple of tests from SANS. I think it was like three or four certs in one day. Uh, and if anybody has taken a SANS certification course, uh, they run about $5,000. And I challenged three of the tests, um, I think it was for $300 because they don't expect you to be able to pass the test. Well, I passed the test got my certs. And then I got a call from SAN saying, Hey, we're going to put you before an audit committee because we want to make sure you didn't cheat. And I thought, Oh, this is a, this is a money thing. It, it really is a money thing because I didn't pay $5,000 per cert, you know, immediately because I didn't take the class, then I'm suspect of, of cheating. Well, I didn't cheat and they gave me my certs later, but it made me think about the way that we look at certs. You know, they are a gauge of, you know, foundational uh, knowledge, but in another aspect, it's a business and it truly is treated like a business. And, you know, we've seen some, some business failures recently from some of the certification companies. And Jim, we're actually, uh, with the Haunted Hacker Crew, we're actually producing our own certification. It's gonna be an offensive certification. Um, we're gonna have kind of a, a battlefield that they can do a capture the flag um, type exercises through Range Force. And we're writing our own documentation and, and testing material. So and it's going to be one of those things where we're not going to be charging $2,000 per, you know, per test or whatever. It's going to be a couple hundred bucks and that's all you have to pay really your time on the range. And, and that's it. And uh, you know, if you, if you fulfill all the tasks and you get your certification um, and I think that's what it should be. Uh, the OSCP is probably one of the better certs because it does have that hands-on aspect. Uh, and there's definitely some defensive certs out there as well that are, that are really good. I don't have any of those. I probably should. Um, but I also have the ArcSight uh, administrator cert you know, and a couple others. So the, the certifications that I think are important 
um, are the hacking, the like the GCIH, which is the incident handling from SANS, and then also GHTQ, which is the cutting edge hacking techniques through SANS. So if any of you are looking to get certs, um, take a look at those. Uh, and if you have the chops, you have the technical chops, challenge that OSCP, um, because that's, I think that's gonna become the industry standard before too long. Um, so Ashley, do you have any certs? Were you working on any certs at the time? Um, honestly, no. Um, I had an interest, but I really haven't done much training um, like in that area. Um, like I was a tech recruiter for a bit um, and then crypto tech in the Navy. But besides that, not really a lot of experience. Yeah, the, the crypto tech part of it is really important too because we went through a lot of technical training as CTs. Um, I think our training was what, 14 weeks, something like that. It was pretty long and they, they shotgunned a lot of math and, and uh, intelligence into a very short period of time. Jim, you're about to say something? Yeah, and let me, let me give you a view of, of everybody, a view of certifications. So uh, if I look around my office here, there's lots of things called plaques on the walls. Uh, I've got everything from uh, CompTIA Security Plus, which I actually helped create, and there was a reason behind that, uh, to my license to uh, do technical handcuffing uh, because I am a licensed uh, security officer, personal executive protection officer in the state of Texas, uh, and lots of others around the, around the wall. So, let, it, you know, got my ham radio license, got lots of things around but let me tell you, you know, Dave Dumas, uh, who's a great mentor of mine uh, and an employee of a certain company, um, he says it so well. He says, you know, the value of certs that if you spent that money or you spent somebody else's money or time is to force you to keep training yourself. A cert is, is a moment in time. It's like an audit. It's a moment in time, folks. Uh, I got the certification and I got a certificate. It's a moment in time if you're doing that for some you know a long-term thing for somebody else you're fooling yourself uh, we created security plus for that two-year new person coming in get your feet wet get understanding but we were there to teach people not give them a certificate on the wall um, and so i'm proud of people that do that uh, but what i want people to do is i want them to continue um, i i and i I didn't trademark this, but let me tell you what I've done. Now, I got a lot of them. I'm privileged to have that. Uh, I've got licenses. I do things around, uh, for example, I've been doing a lot of things around as a first responder in Texas. So I have a wildland firefighter certification. I'm actually a wildland firefighter. Okay. And I got a security plus on the wall. Okay. That, is that just whack people out? You know, what, that's a diversity. But let me tell you what happened there. What happens there is that I, I took a couple of years ago and I created what I call a resume bucket list. And what it is, is it's a, in my mind, is I go down and I say, what do I want my resume to look like in two years? And what do I want to challenge myself to learn? Now that might be a cert, maybe just a class. It may be a license. Uh, it may be something that a volunteer type of situation. What do you want to put on your resume for you? for you in the mirror that says, I'm going to keep pushing myself. Folks, if cert is what you're looking for. Now, again, when I'm doing hiring and things like that, I've had people that have CISSP and PhDs that cannot answer my famous question. It might probably remember my famous question. My famous question that I ask in every technical interview is describe the OSI model. I love that. Okay. And it's not to trick people, folks. It's to wonder, did they keep learning? 
God, they, they got this great resume. Did they keep learning? Folks, I want you to keep learning. It's not about the cert. Certs are very powerful. They push you. They add, add into your different areas. But if you look at the variety of search that I did, and I would say that, you know, it's kind of like having somebody saying, uh, I want to go get a, one of the ones that Mike just mentioned on, on ethical hacking and things like that and on things like that. Why don't you combine that with a PMP or, or a Toastmasters? Why? Because now you can project manage a ethical hacking program. Now you can do Toastmasters for uh, presentation skills. My son is Asperger's also, Mike, so I, I get it. And so it's, it's those other skills. Create you a resume bucket list. If you get nothing out of me today, go create your resume bucket list, one to two years, 10 to 15 different things. I don't care if it's a four-hour thing or a full license and certification. Please go do that. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the certs that I have are pretty diverse too. Um, you know, the CEH, ECSA, GCIH, GHTQ, GHD, and then I have the, uh, of course, another a ham license as well. Uh, that was one of my big things I got into when I was in the military was uh, radio and RF, which I think people don't give enough uh, thought about when it comes to compromise and, and data exfiltration is RF. Um, and I'm trying to push that uh, vocally through the industry because there's, there's so many things with RF that you can do. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to take this a little different direction now, uh, Jim, I really appreciate it. And please stay on. Um, we have a second guest yep. key, uh, Jeffrey, who's a CTO awesome. um, of a blockchain company. And I want to introduce him and give him a chance to, uh, give, give us his background and, and we'll just have a round table discussion. So key, why don't you, uh, tell the listeners who you are, uh, where you're from and, uh, you know, what you, what you do. Yeah, hey guys, uh, good to be here. I'm from Australia, uh, as you can maybe hear in my accent. It's a little bit earlier than I think for the rest of you all here. Um, I work at uh, Oxen, which is the company that develops Session and LogNet, which are both onion routing protocols slash end-to-end -end encrypted messengers. Um, so yeah, a bit of a different background from you guys because most of you guys be from the cybersecurity world. Um, but yeah, excited to be here and definitely vibing off some of the things that you guys were talking about before. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. I started getting into um, cryptocurrencies not too long ago, uh, messing with Monero and, and a couple other, you know, uh, crypto cryptocurrencies. What got you into uh, the business? Uh, it, you know, you say it's not cybersecurity, but I think there's a level of cybersecurity that goes into blockchain, uh, especially when you talk about the Onion uh, protocol and, and that type of routing. Um, definitely, a, definitely a level of security that goes into that. So why don't, why don't you explain to us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis and, and how you work with the blockchain? Yeah, so uh, like a little bit about my background. I actually studied um, computer science, but with a major in cybersecurity um, in university, uh, but dropped out halfway through to start a blockchain company um, when I was 21. So that was a really fun kind of getting to merge those two worlds together because I was really interested in the kind of academic uh, side of things like building new protocols, um, preserving people's security or privacy more online, and then getting to apply that to the blockchain world, which at that point in 2018, we've just been through the kind of one of the worst crashes. I think we're going through one now as well in cryptocurrency, but um, building a company in the 
middle of the bear market was really fun as well. Um, and raising money too um, for investors to build that company out was also good. Um, in the blockchain world, like we really focus, or we tend to focus on the privacy front of things. So there's uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, that tend to have this open ledger where all of the transactions are sent between each other and you can see all of the links between the different accounts. Uh, when you look at some of these private blockchains like Monero or Zcash, uh, the sending of amounts to different addresses is actually obfuscated. Um, so that's the most kind of major difference on the blockchain front. Uh, and we've kind of harnessed that to build networks on top of the blockchain as well, which provide different services too. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, actually, the, the cryptocurrency that I was messing with was Monero, um, strictly because of the, the more, the extra level of, uh, I guess, privacy when it comes to transactions with Monero. Um, Ashley, I know that you have a couple of questions for, uh, for Key. Um, yes. Um, well, I know you talked about, um, actually, you kind of went over my first question. So uh, second one I had was, um, do you think that eventually we're going to get away from, you know, like country specific currency and kind of um, rely solely on cryptocurrency? Um, this is an interesting question because there's been a lot of development around the kind of um, central bank issued coins. Mm -hmm. They haven't really started showing up much in the mainstream yet, but I know the Australian central bank, um, the Reserve Bank here is working on a uh, centrally issued digital coin. And I think the US might be working on one as well. Um, and, and I think that offers a lot of advantages to central banks as well, because right now the system is very fractured. Like you have the kind of central bank and then you have these like private banking institutions that hold most of the people's money. And if the bank wants to bring all of that data together about how money is moving around the system, they have to talk to a lot of different parties. And also when you look at something like taxation as well, uh, it's hard to like kind of track down everyone's account and monitor money money as it moves through the system when you've got this really fractured kind of internet of, of money. If you just have one central currency that you issue and all of the transactions are, are viewable by you, then you can start imposing like kind of transactional taxes or working out where people's money is stored and it can never kind of leave the system as well. Um, so I think that's the motivation for kind of central bankers. And I think we're going to start seeing it more and more um, in the next couple of years. You'll start seeing digitally issued um, currencies. And it might not be that the end user is actually using the uh, central bank currency, but it might be that the, the private banks are onboarded first. So the way that the central bank issues their money uh, to the private banks is through this digitalized uh, blockchain currency. And then the users just interact with their bank normally. And that'll like filter down over the, uh, the coming years to the user actually maybe having a wallet on this on their side where they, you know, receive some of this digital currency from a central. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, that you talk One second, actually. It's really interesting that you talk about the, 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 the exchanges of uh, transactions and, you know, trying to, you know, keep your, your purses and, and your activity kind of private. And the reason why I wanted to jump in really quick, the, the exposure I got to crypto was kind of forced. Um, I'm not allowed to get a bank account in the US uh, because I'm on some kind of list, um, DHS list, I guess. 
so I bank through an online service and use a uh, cryptocurrency. So when I get deposits in that said service, it immediately gets transferred to crypto. That way, you know, if the government tries to shut down my account, they can't touch the crypto. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's a, a, it's a strong point to make when it comes to, you know, countries having too much access to people's money and, and transactions and too much information. Uh, I think cryptocurrency is, is going to be the next solution because the dollar, you know, as we all know, they, they print money like crazy. And, and really the money that they print doesn't have any kind of financial worth, to be honest with you. Um, and with, you know, cryptocurrency is a little bit different. And I, I like the privacy of it. Uh, so, yeah. Um, go ahead, Ashley. Um, I was just going to ask, um, when you're talking about wallets, so I'm... I don't really have a whole lot of knowledge on cryptocurrency. Like I have a little bit here and there, um, but you know, um, the knowledge just isn't there. But as far as protecting um, cryptocurrency, what would you suggest to, um, you know, people that are new to crypto like I am, um, just for making sure that it's all secure? Because um, you now I have like different apps and whatnot, different accounts. Um, yeah, how do you just secure it, I guess, or make sure that it's all protected? I think uh, it depends how far you kind of want to get into it. I think one of the like easiest and safest ways to store crypto or large amounts of crypto if you're a consumer is a hardware wallet. I don't. Yeah, I've got one on my. Um, I've got one on my desk here, which is essentially it's like a hardware kind of security device that has a little secure enclave on it, um, which stores your keys on it, and you connect it to your computer. And it's completely, or it's it's distant enough from your computer that uh, it's much harder to hack than something that's always online and that you're downloading, you know, weird software on and stuff. Um, so that's generally how I would say you you should deal with your um, keys if you're kind of storing, you know, more and more money. But if you're just playing around with crypto and it's you know 100, 200 dollars, then you know, downloading one of the wallets that's on your phone or on your desktop, you know, your, your threat security model is a lot different um, from someone who's storing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. uh, and wants that extra security of a hardware device. Um, and, and at this point, all of the exchanges also offer like pretty good, you know, second factor authentication options. So storing on an exchange isn't that bad of an option if you're just storing kind of low amounts of money like Coinbase or, um, you know, whatever exchange you use. Okay. Well, thank you so, for that. Kim has a question. Uh, with big banking and countries implementing policies, what do you think the next biggest challenge you see for privacy? Well, I, I the, the biggest kind of trend that I see emerging is that is this kind of privacy and name only trend. Uh, a lot of people are kind of capitalizing on this idea that privacy is a hot trend right now and people want more privacy but they don't really know what they're getting when that company sells them privacy for example i think apple is going down a good route right now like trying to offer more privacy to their users but the reality is like they still want to be able to access everything in your iCloud for example like it's uh, and i think this is going to happen in in banking as well like uh you know people will be talking about privacy more They'll be telling you that, you know, their institutions are private, and, you know, we've never been hacked or whatever. But I think it, it's really kind of 
a marketing tool at this point, like to start to start selling things to people. And I, and I worry that that kind of extends further and further and, and we start seeing people thinking that they're private, even though they've just kind of been sold this idea of privacy. Very cool. Um, so Tanisha has a question. She says, so what are your thoughts about the return of currency for the recent colonial pipeline hack? I've heard tell some folks uh, think the government has access. Do you have faith that your funds are protected? Good question. Yeah, uh, so I think there was a bit of a misunderstanding about what actually happened there. That was just from my understanding of reading into it, uh, I think it was the FBI, um, has just been able to seize uh, some hackers' wallets that were, um, you know, the funds of a ransomware attack. They didn't hack Bitcoin or anything like that. They didn't break the cryptography involved in Bitcoin. They just, I think they just got access to a VPS that was hosting a Bitcoin wallet and the keys were stored unsecured on that VPS. So it's not so much a hack of Bitcoin as more it is just kind of, um, you know, the FBI getting access to some hacker's wallet and then, um, you know, repossessing that that Bitcoin uh, and then going through the, the process of, you know, um, selling that Bitcoin so that the state can be can be funded just as they would do if they had seized money from a drug dealer, for example, or cash, you know. And it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, the, the initial thought and word was that they had hacked the cryptocurrency. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but when the terrorist uh, cell phone in, in California were, were obtained, the FBI couldn't even break into a, uh, an iPhone. So them being able to break into a cryptocurrency is probably really far-fetched. Um, so we have another question from Mohammed. He says, do you see corporate organized organizations wanting to transact through cryptocurrency? I think actually it's going to be, I, I think it's right now at a very low level in terms of like corporates actually wanting to use cryptocurrency for remittance, but I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. And I think the reason for that is because the, like the corporate kind of money moving structures are very kind of solidified and ossified. And I don't think like there's a lot of process around how you transfer money to a company, you know, what the procedures around that are. But when you look at some of the advantages of a stable coin, which is a coin that's kind of tied to the value of the US dollar, like USDC or USDT, uh, being able to send money within, you know, uh, 10 minutes to someone anywhere in the world and you don't have to, um, you know, if you've ever tried to send money overseas to like, you know, Russia or like some kind of semi-failed state, like your bank gets on you immediately and asks you all these questions like, why are you sending money here? Like, what's the purpose of this transaction? With USDC and USDT, you just know their Ethereum address and you send it and then they receive it 14 minutes later. So it does solve a lot of the issue. Like, it, it creates its own issues because there's less compliance around it, but it also solves its issues and it's, it's faster and, and cheaper to use as well. So I think it will become a thing for corporates. It's just going to be in which use cases it's used because um, it does make sense to have protocols around moving large amounts of money so that, you know, uh, the, the company is protected from losses, essentially. Yeah, I think uh, after the Colonial Pipeline hack, um, there was, I say hack, it wasn't really a hack, but after the Colonial Pipeline uh, issue, um, the U.S. government uh, made a statement that I thought was really interesting about um, immediately they wanted to point out that it was a, a cryptocurrency that was obtained. 
Um, and the fact that they pointed out that, you know, hackers and, and dark web focus on cryptocurrency as a way to transact, um, I think was, it was a bad move on their part. Um, it gives a, it gives cryptocurrency and that, that market a black eye. Um, and traditionally, you know, it, it has been known to be the, the staple of transactions for the dark web, um, but that's changing pretty fast. Uh, it's more accepted, but you still have the, the archaic thinkers, like some people in the U.S. government that believe that, you know, it's a nefarious way of, of making transactions. Um, and it may be, you know, it, it keeps me from having to pay a lot of taxes um, and a lot of other issues, but um, I really think that cryptocurrency should be a staple before too long. Uh, if you look at the IRS and the Federal Reserve and the private organizations that, that control those, um, I, I don't really trust that. I trust the blockchain a lot more than I would trust the Federal Reserve or the IRS. Uh, and I'm probably gonna land on another list because I'm making that statement, but it's the honest truth. Um, so uh, we have, uh, we don't have any other questions. Um, Ashley, do you have any more questions for, for Key? Um, no, those were my big ones. So you've kind of gone over everything else. So if someone was going to get into cryptocurrency and, and create their own currency, um, I've actually been tossing around the idea of creating a token um, that sits on top of one of the blockchains. Uh, what would be the best way to go about that? And what kind of advice do you have for anybody wanting to create their own token? So it really kind of depends how far you want to go down that route. I think that one of the easiest ways right now uh, and has been for the last couple of years is to use the ERC-20 standard, which is essentially a, a token on top of Ethereum, which is the second biggest kind of blockchain network out there. Uh, and that will give you a fair amount of control about, you know, how that token is used and what kind of smart contracts that token can interact with and when you you know when you create an erc20 token you also get access to all of the other applications that have been built on top of ethereum as well so you instantly get an exchange for example called uniswap which allows you to swap between different tokens um, if you want to build something more custom then you're actually looking at running your own blockchain and that becomes a lot more complicated a lot more quickly because you're going to need to look at, at actually forking something like Bitcoin or forking something like Monero, an existing project is it's probably a good place to start. But that means you also need to build this network of nodes that's around the, uh, around the world and potentially miners or uh, validators who are producing uh, blocks on your network. Um, so yeah, the, the simple way to do it if, if you don't want to get in, too involved is to, is to mint an ERC-20 token, um, which is pretty easy. Uh, there's online tools which will allow you to do that now. And you set your supply and you set you know, how many are, are created. And um, yeah, that's, pre that's a pretty easy process at this point. So And, and yeah, you get to buy into the uh, Ethereum ecosystem as well. Um, so you get all of their wallets, you get their exchanges, you get the network effect that they've already built. Yeah, I may, uh, I may be rattling your chain for some help uh, in that area. I'm pretty new to crypto and, and I, I want to create a token for the Haunted Hacker Group, uh, you know, specifically. I think that'd be really cool. I did work for a company in Scotland called Zortrex. Um, they're a tokenization company, uh, privacy advocates. Um, but it was weird because their, their, their stuff resided on AWS and you know, the, the platform was kind of strange, but there's a lot of companies uh, popping up all over the place that, that are trying to get into the privacy and tokenization and, and cryptocurrencies. Um, one, one challenge that I'm kind of curious about, 
that um, I've ran into is computing power, right? So when I'm mining for Bitcoin, you know, I did a little project with Raspberry Pis, but as you know, like if you're mining with a Raspberry Pi, you may be dead before you get a full token or a full uh, full coin. Um, so yeah, do you, do you see that process being any easier in the future or, or less, uh, less in, intrusive? Because I, I think Elon Musk made a point when he said um, he was gonna start allowing Bitcoin uh, with Tesla again, if they started using clean energy. Um, because for those who, who mine Bitcoin, we all know that you probably spend more on electricity than you actually make mining the, the Bitcoin. Uh, so do you see that process getting any better or any easier streamlined? What? Um, it depends. For Bitcoin, uh, frankly, the answer is no, um, because Bitcoin is Bitcoin's built around this model of proof of work, which is this idea that you can spend computational power to generate new coins. And because Bitcoin has become so valuable um, now, it's it, the entire operation has moved to places where it's very uh, energy efficient and where uh, miners can build economies of scale. And also they're not mining on your traditional kind of computational hardware. They're using special uh, chips called ASICs, which are designed around the SHA-256 uh, hashing process. The, the chip is actually designed around the algorithm. Um, so it only has one purpose, which is to mine Bitcoin, these, these machines that these miners buy. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're operating off electricity that's, you know, like one cent per kilowatt, like just ridiculous pricing that you'll never be able to achieve. Um, so for Bitcoin, no, like if you want to get into that space, you're really going to have to run a commercial mining operation or find a, find a niche where you can get access to really cheap electricity or free electricity, potentially if you have renewables. Um, and then it starts to make sense. But even then you're, you're, com you're committing to mining hardware, which goes out of date after a couple of years. So if you're not pushing the max kind of volume out of it, um, it becomes it becomes annoying as well. Like if you live in a hot climate, for example, that's not a, a good place to mine because you're the cheaper you can passively cool your miners, um, the cheaper it's going to be to continue to mine. If they're getting too hot, then they have to throttle themselves. Um, most of the cryptocurrency world is now moving towards a model called proof of stake, which is instead of uh, you committing computational resources to the network and using that to mine, you actually buy coins and commit those to the network. And by holding those coins, you earn additional coins. Um, and that's, and usually there is some kind of validator process as well, where you have to be online and you have to, um, you know, sign a number of blocks and send them to the network or create new blocks and send them to the network. But that, the good thing about that is that um, that process is a lot uh, cheaper. You don't actually need this like high level of computational resources, you could just run off a Raspberry Pi or a, a VPS um, hosted on the internet. And as long as you have those coins committed there, um, you're keeping the network secure. So I think what you're gonna see in the next couple of years is a big move towards proof of stake. Ethereum's already going there. There's quite a few other coins that are moving towards proof of stake. Bitcoin will stay a monolith, I think. And it's, its production of coins is not going to be controlled by some sort of committee which is saying that you know we should use more or less renewable energy it's going to be controlled by whatever the cheapest electricity source is and if that happens to be renewable energy then you know miners will use renewable energy and we do see that a lot in um in nordic countries as well where they're setting up around geothermal um 
but yeah, it, it, it's a it's a complex kind of moving process. But I think that's a little bit of a snapshot there. Go ahead, Jim. Jim had a question or, or an explanation about corp the the comment about corporate use. Um, go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that um, is going on in corporate, and I'm not just talking about my employer, but around the corporate worlds that I get to play in. Um, one is is um, is Bitcoin is is uh, blockchain is much more uh, involved around, particularly around supply chain. I do a lot of work around supply chain uh, uh, fraud and fraud, supply chain security. And I can tell you that that there there's so many issues around um, supply chain. And forget about the stuff that's going on right now. I'm talking about the, the last five, four or five years. And so I tell you that if you are interested in the blockchain side, there's a huge, uh, I think, opportunity for blockchain and the supply chain world. Obviously, there's a security mindset around that, uh, but there's just a big, big need in that area. If you look at something like an Amazon or a Walmart in their warehouses. Now, my son sells on Walmart. He's a warehouse uh, part of the Walmart program. Uh, and they've tried it. They've tried RFID. They've tried a lot of things. And so it's a big area if you think about kind of what your resume bucket list is, is supply chain and blockchain. Um, but on the, on, the, on the corporate side, and this sounds funny, and this is not meant to degrade anybody, but right now, cryptocurrency, uh, the, uh, the average person that's sitting in a finance department in a corporation, no clue. Uh, they're not training on it in CPA school, all due respect to CPAs. So it, it's, it sounds funny, but until we get into, uh, until we get the stuff into CPA 101, finance 101, those early on, it's going to be harder for corporate because they want to do what they've done all along. I'm not saying it's a, a, the best way for the future and security and stuff like that, but just understand, you know, my son getting a payment uh, for doing some work for an Amazon seller, you know what, he's three people at his little company, little LLC, um, you know, QuickBooks ain't supporting cryptocurrency right now. So it's that adoption at very early on and it, it, you hate, it's kind of sounds strange, but until the high school classes and the first year college finance classes start to talk about this, it's going to be hard to get it into a corporate world. Just a perspective, Mike. Absolutely. And I think key is definitely uh, an exception to what I see in the, in the commercial world. You know, a young kid that gets into crypto and, and starts his, his own venture is very rare. I, I think I've only ran into a couple guys that, that have been successful at, at doing that. Um, I do have one question though. So, Elon Musk and his influence in the crypto world, the cryptocurrency world, uh, to me, it's a little frustrating. Uh, and I've been watching kind of like the market volatility and, and really it, it rides on his comments. And when he decides to pump the currency, uh, he'll dump a bunch of money and all of a sudden, you know, crypto, you know, a specific cryptocurrency goes up. Uh, so it seems to ride on his back quite a bit. What, what are your thoughts with that key? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have been frustrated with it a little bit over the past couple of months as well. I think um, from looking at it, it's kind of clear that he doesn't really know what he's talking about when he makes these tweets. I mean, it's it's no kind of um, dissuasion to him tweeting. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, and I'm more than happy to read his tweets. Um, and I think, you know, over time, you're seeing him start to get a bit more involved in some of these projects as well. And I think 
he's he's tweeting less now as well, which is um, making me view the situation a little bit better. But yeah, I think that's really it's really kind of representative of a very nascent market when like the opinion of one person can cause you know twenty percent rises or twenty percent falls in certain in certain coins like where and, and even the biggest coins out there um bitcoin are, are subject to you know what he's writing on twitter um so yeah i don't know it's it's interesting i don't think we've ever had kind of a, a someone who moves the market as much as him um so it's a, it's a new perspective i think to to take in yeah absolutely um i think he's been a little bit more uh, sheltered when it comes to tweeting uh, he had a, a volley between himself and, and anonymous at one point and uh, that was a really bad move on his part. But yeah, I think that, you know, he's starting to see the, the volatility of the market and, and it's not going to help the cryptocurrencies that he backs if he continues to manipulate the market like that. Um, and I, I think that's... Yeah, that's, I mean... Go ahead. There's a place for everyone to kind of just have fun. And I think that's more what his Twitter is. I don't think it's supposed to be taken super seriously. Um, but it does end up going that way. Like people do take it seriously because he's one of the kind of most enigmatic uh, CEOs out there of a tech company, multiple tech companies. So yeah, I think people maybe need to take what he's saying a bit less, less seriously because, you know, he's talking about Dogecoin and, and, you know, posting lots of memes on his Twitter. So, you know, maybe just take it more in a lighthearted way uh, rather than kind of a super serious message he's putting out. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, my first uh, introduction to Dogecoin was uh, looking at something on the internet with Snoop Dogg. And I thought, wow, okay, so now we have a cryptocurrency with Snoop. That's 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 really impressive, kind of depressive too. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's, it's an interesting market for sure. Uh, something that, that I've always been interested in, but just never really touched until the US traditional banking decided to uh, exile me. So now I've been looking at different ways to, you know, handle money and, and different organizations to go through. Um, and it's funny, you mentioned like the, the temperature for mining. So I know that there's one place in, I want to say it's Greenland, maybe it's Iceland, super cold underground, um, basically inside of a mountain. And it's like cold vault storage. And I think that's probably uh, the best place to mine. I also had another idea too, you know, I, I knew how hard it was to mine, you know, different cryptocurrencies and how long it took. So I made this arcade with a Raspberry Pi and I thought, you know, I could probably toss a mining script on every one that I make and sell those. So when they crank them up, they're automatically, you know, mining for Bitcoin and you're not going to see a fluctuation in the, the process of the arcade games on that Raspberry Pi because it takes little to no processing power for those. Um, and then in oil and gas, I did a lot of uh, like security and, and defense and oil and gas. And what I found was the um, browser plugins for the crypto miners are very intrusive. Uh, and it's really easy to pick up which ones have the browser plugin uh, miners because you walk by a laptop and it sounds like it's taking off like a jet engine. Uh, but it's pretty popular. Um, you see them everywhere. Every time that I've looked at, at an affected device or, or a device that I had maybe like some security issues or concerns with, there was always miners on it. Uh, so someone out there is making a lot of money. And when we look at the uh, political situation, every time that we put sanctions on North Korea or we put sanctions on Iran, what's the first thing they do? They go out and try to like break into people's Bitcoin wallets and you know, try to mine for Bitcoin. Uh, and I think that's gonna be the, the environment that we're in now. I don't think that's gonna go away for a long time, especially you know, with, the, with the tensions globally right now.
Um, no more questions. Do you have any questions for us, Key or Jim? Um, you know, I, I know that uh, Ryan talked to you, Key, about about the group and and what we do, and you know, anything like that. Um, do you have any questions for the for the crew that we could answer and, and kind of give you some insight as to what we do? There was uh, something that I just wanted to talk about with you, um, where you were talking about um, how, how kind of yeah. There's these new attacks where um, people will install um, software that starts mining on, you know, either a, a large kind of corporate network or, or individual devices. Often, and it's interesting actually, often what they're mining there is uh, Monero. And the reason that they mine uh, Monero is not so much because of the privacy aspects of Monero, but because Monero employs a different type of um, hashing algorithm, which is very optimized for um, kind of consumer level uh, CPU uh, kind of kind of devices or devices that would hold consumer level CPUs. Um, with Bitcoin mining, because it is such a specific process, it means that, and, and there's all of these ASIC chips out there that are designed for it. It means that if you take traditional hardware and put that on the Bitcoin mining network, that it would be much less efficient than the existing miners out there. So yeah, you'll see oftentimes that these attackers are mining kind of kind of fringe cryptocurrencies or cryptocurrencies that use kind of optimized hashing algorithms for consumer level devices. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, there's actually uh, some Raspberry Pi scripts and there's a couple of OSs built just for mining crypto. And most of those uh, fall within like Ethereum and Monero. Uh, I'm using one right now that, that mines for Monero. And uh, literally it's just a script and to download the blockchain to, to start, you know, the actual mining, it took probably half the time than a, a Bitcoin miner would take. It literally was like super fast. Uh, so yeah, like, the, I mean, that, that aspects are getting a lot better. Um, but everybody wants that Bitcoin because of the, the value of the Bitcoin, you know, was so high at one point. Uh, you know, I knew people who cashed in a couple of Bitcoins and bought a house or, you know, retired. You know, so so that that possibility is there. But right now we're in an interesting place where, you know, the, the volatility market took it down a little bit. And uh, I think right now is probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but right now would probably be a better time to start mining than, let's say, five years ago, um, because I think that we're about to see an influx. It's it's always tricky. I, I wouldn't if, if you're if the if you want to invest in cryptocurrencies, I wouldn't suggest mining just because it's you've got a lot of competition against people who are in much cheaper places to get their electricity. Um, if you want to kind of invest, I think the easiest way is just to buy and buy and hold coins. Um, but it's it's also you get a lot of technical knowledge as well from mining. So if you're looking for a pursuit of something that you want to do for fun, mining actually is a really fun thing to do, uh, like with your friends and, and family. And, you know, you can physically see the device moving along and, and, and how much progress it's making as well, which I think um, kind of helps people understand how these how these cryptocurrencies work. I did have a question um, there. Maybe I guess this is for everyone who can who can talk. I think like now that I'm starting to deal more with hiring people and I have been for the past couple of years, I don't really look at certifications at all. And maybe that's because I work more for a tech company and, and we don't really kind of do cybersecurity as much. But really what I'm looking for now is kind of active GitHub profiles, projects that they've worked on that they can show me the source code for and that I can analyze. Um, and projects that I can use, like, you know, kind of just, you know, five minute tools or something that someone's created as a weekend project 
that I can kind of interact with. I find that the certification stuff is a little bit hard to understand what goes into that certification or what that actually means and, and how easy it was to pass. Or So I, I tend to try and look for kind of projects that people have built in their personal time. Is that an approach that is being taken more and more by kind of hiring in the cybersecurity world or, or how do you see it? Well, from, from my point of view, that's kind of what I've, I've been doing for the past 10 years. Um, it's, you know, HR requires a certain level of certification, but to me, once I get past that HR initial screen, um, it's less for me the cert and it's more creative thinking, but the, the thought process, um, the hands-on, I'll usually create like a couple of vulnerable machines and give them a couple hours to test those machines and then take the results and be able to articulate what they found and how they found it. Um, to me, that shows a process. It shows the, you know, a thinking method and it helps me understand, you know, their, their troubleshooting skills as well as their creativity level. And I think creativity is a big factor. Um, what I found with, especially pen testers is most of them, if not all of them have some sort of creative hobby, whether it be music, whether it be art, drawing, acting, whatever, that they're always involved with some kind of creative process because with pen testing, you have to be creative. And so when I look at a network, before I even start pen testing, I have a visual image in my head of where I need to go through that network and how to get to a certain device and what traffic I'm seeing. I try to visualize all that because I'm a visual learner. Um, really, people with Asperger's probably have the most trouble or should have the most trouble when it comes to pen testing um, because we're very black and white. But what I'm finding is we're able to visualize the, the network easily in our head. We may not be able to articulate it to you, but I can show you. I can show you how to do it. And to me, that's more important than any cert. Uh, it's a thought process. Anybody can take a test. And I don't slight people who, who fail certification tests because I'm not a good test taker. Um, and that, like, like Jim said, it's a, it's a snapshot in time. Um, and not all people learn the same way. What do you yeah, think, Jim? Key, yeah, Key, I think that... Um... What I, you know, one of the things when I do interviews, and I've of course interviewed for a long time, and in in, as a as a supervisor and a manager, um, is almost a hundred percent of the questions that I ask, and it may sound simple and easy, but give me an example of, and in some skill or thing that I do, soft skill, hard skill, or something, give me an example of, and I'll tell you, probably seventy five percent of the answers that I get out of those questions are how they would do it. And what that tells me is not that they don't know how, but they're not listening. And it, it sounds simple, but give me an example of um, a time you had to rebuild a server and, and under a, an outage or something like that. And so I, I'm looking for, because here's what I tell people in an interview standpoint is do not tell me what you know, tell me what you have done then I will know what you know. Remember, the interviewer is smarter than you usually. They have a different. They have. A, they may not have the, a, a different perspective that you do, but they generally already know the answers to the questions. So that's why the questions are very important. What I look for from a certification, what I'm looking for, it is not a skill set. I'm looking for somebody that's ongoing, educating themselves. They're continuing to force themselves. I want somebody with a resume bucket list or a, a training plan in their program where 75% of the training and certification or licenses or whatever they're doing to better themselves is paid for by them. If your boss, as I say, if your boss isn't budgeting for your ongoing training, 
That's not his fault. That's your fault. You know, Dave Ramsey, every dollar has a, has a, has a name. Okay. When, when you're doing your budget at the beginning of the year, you should have training and certifications and, and resume bucket list, whatever you want to call that term. And so that's what I'm looking for. Key is give me some examples of what you're doing. The certifications are proof to me. It's the, it proves to me, look, now if I see somebody did a certification 10 years ago, big whoop de do doesn't show me an ongoing. If you look at mine, cause I practice what I preach, you're going to see 
for actually producing a signal that doesn't drop me every 10 seconds. Uh, and the story behind that is, so we had a, a ISP called Nomad. Um, I'm sure Jim that you've heard about Nomad. They, uh, they actually use uh, SIMS. It's an LTE provider and they actually use SIMS from like AT&T and Verizon. And uh, up here on this mountain, I can't get any kind of connection. Like I, I get kicked off every 10 seconds almost. But we went to Google Fi. Google Fi still uses the same thing. Uh, it uses LTE connections and, and towers from like, uh, I want to say uh, US Wireless as well as T-Mobile and some other like legacy, what's left of the Sprint network. Um, so yeah, I applaud uh, Google Fi for the connection and uh, Nomad Internet, you're on the way out the door. Um, but I want to thank you guys for, for coming on. It, it means a lot to me to have Jim on. Um, it's good to see you're doing well and you're welcome anytime back on the podcast as a co-host or you know, if you want to be a guest again, or if you have people that you want, you know, to get exposure into the cybersecurity world, I'd be more than happy to interview them. And uh, Key, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm sorry we didn't catch up the, the last time, um, but I definitely appreciate you being here and just the same. You're, you're welcome anytime you want and uh, participate if you want with the Discord or, or whatever you want. Uh, and Ashley, thanks again for, for volunteering to co-host or being voluntold. Um, you're in the Navy, you should expect that. Uh, and you did a great job. So with that, I'm going to close it down and uh, I will see you guys next weekend and uh, be safe and stay strong. Bye guys. Great. Thanks, Mike.